Good morning. I know not everybody's in yet, and uh, we're all talking, but the live stream says we have to start, so we have to start. Uh, glad that you guys are here. Welcome to St. James. Uh, welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. Uh, just a quick notice about today. Everything's back on schedule today, so um, uh, new members class tonight at 6 o'clock. Whoever wants to show up at that can. Uh, we got men's Bible study Tuesday morning. We have uh, ladies' Bible study Saturday morning, youth group Tuesday night. Uh, if you want to participate in the uh, um, great divorce uh, study, you can't do that this week because we're not having it. But we are having it next week, so shoot me a text or an email, and I can send you the link to that. We're just reading through C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce and uh, talking about what, 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 what he says in there about, uh, it's a lot of good stuff about the difference between uh, um, saying, thy will be done to God, and God saying, thy will be done to us. So if you have any questions about that, let me know, and I can get you the Zoom link. Uh, please come downstairs for uh, adult Bible study and kids' Sunday school, too, if you have kids. But come downstairs for adult Bible study after uh, the service this morning, because we're talking about heaven, and um, I think it should be good. I think it should be interesting and helpful. So let's go ahead and stand, and let me open us in prayer, and then we'll sing the first hymn. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning with our shame, and uh, we're reflecting on uh, who we are before your face, and how uh, we haven't loved you like we should this week, and how we haven't loved each other like we should this week. Uh, but God, uh, you completely and absolutely 100% accept us for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we throw ourselves onto that and into that. Help us to find our identity in you and who you've called us to be in your son, Jesus Christ. And as we uh, come together this morning, Father, give yourself to us. We need you to meet with us and give yourself to us. We don't need more information uh, we don't need even a powerful psychological experience. All those things would be great, but mainly, Father, we need you. And so give yourself to us in your word. Give yourself to us in your sacrament this morning. And do this for your own glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's pray and ask God to, forget, to forgive our sins. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto You all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended You and justly deserved Your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray You of Your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of Your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this Your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to You I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of Your servant, for to You, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Let's read Psalm 3 together. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
Old Testament reading, Isaiah 65. This is uh, right near the end of Isaiah. It's one of the last bits of judgment on uh, God's people who rebelled against him. In fact, he even says that they aren't, they aren't called by his name. But then it ends with some good, uh, it ends with some good grace at the end. I, I, uh, this is uh, God talking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. This is all like God doesn't have anything against uh, cemeteries. These are all you know, pagan practices. Uh, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their formal, former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there's a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servant shall dwell there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, the epistle reading is uh, last bit of Galatians 3, first bit of Galatians 4, and this will be the sermon text this morning too. Uh, Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
stand for the gospel reading. Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 8. Glory to you, O Lord. Then they sailed, Jesus and his disciples, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. And then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. turn in the bulletins uh, back to Galatians, to the epistle reading with me, and we're going to look at the Galatians 3 text today. I, I, so the, the Galatians 3 text, I, well the story about, the, uh, the, story about the, uh, the demon-possessed guy who gets the demons cast out of him into the pigs, that's a really good one, and it should show you how much I love Galatians 3, that I'm not going to talk about that. For those of you who know me, uh, if you've gone through new members class, uh, 
You know, like Galatians 3 is like in my mind, that's like the apex of Holy Scripture. It's so, so good. There's so much in there. And um, I'm so excited when we get to talk about it. And it's going to, I'm going to, we're going to look at this and I'm going to talk a little bit about a lot of the things I've been kind of talking about lately, which is, um, you know, our our identity, who we are, who, who do you see yourself as being, and how the Bible is challenging us to find our identity, our true identity in Jesus Christ. But let me set, the, let me set this reading up for you, because I, seriously, we're just jumping right into the middle of this big, long argument of Paul's that, that pretty much goes back to chapter 2 of Galatians. And I'll try, try to sum up this argument as, as quickly as I can. The church in Galatia is made up of, it's, 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 uh, it's made up of Jewish Christians, and uh, lately, Gentile Christians have been coming in. And now the Jewish Christians are having a crisis because there are Gentile Christians coming in and the Gentiles don't look like them and don't talk like them and don't act like them and they don't have the same morals as them either. They don't observe Sabbath. They don't eat kosher, uh, just purely kosher food. Uh, many of the men are not circumcised. And so there's a, uh, many of the Jewish, or at least some of the Jewish teachers in the church, the Jewish Christian teachers, are telling the Gentiles that, okay, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but now you have to become a Jew. If you're really going to be a, a real member of God's people, you've got to become a Jew. So uh, Paul's dealing with a, c- a couple of different things here in Galatians 2. It's food laws and separating from people who don't share food laws. In Galatians 3, it's circumcision. Men need to get circumcised if they want to become a real Christian, is what the Jewish Christian people in the church are saying. And Paul is going to come at that in Galatians 2 or 3, and this is weird because we're jumping right into the middle here. But Paul's basically going to say this. He's going to say, the law, you know, rules about kosher food, rules about uh, uh, the clothes you wear, rules about uh, Sabbaths and circumcision. That was never meant to get you into God's people. The law was never intended to do that. Never could do that. Instead, he says, well, let me just point out to you the the structure of the passage. He's going to say, the law did this back then, but now that Jesus has come, something new is here. So let me just, if you could just look at this with me. In in, uh, Galatians 3, verses 23 through 25, I'm sorry, 23 through 24, he says, the law was for back then. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, by which he means Jesus, now something different is happening. Verses 25 through 29. Then he repeats it in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, again, the law was for back then before Jesus. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, now something different is here at the end of, uh, at the end of our reading. So he says the same thing twice. And why does he say the same thing twice? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, there's a lot of reasons, but I'm going to give you one good reason why he repeats himself. It's going to be at the end of the sermon, though. But Paul's going to argue that the law performed a certain function until Jesus came, and then once Jesus comes, the, the law is no longer necessary. You don't have to hold on to the law as an identity marker anymore. And basically what he's saying is this. The law was our guardian until Jesus came. And that's what he says. Uh, and it's just kind of a quote from uh, uh, verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came. So what does it mean the law was our guardian until Christ came? I'll just give you a couple of examples. One is this. I'm going to give you one is a new one, and then one of my favorite examples of this, which some of you, again, new members, people, you've heard this before. Uh, my daughter Kate plays the clarinet, and 
uh, I think she's really good. But of course, that's what like, uh, her dad would think, of course. Uh, and there's something that she's been working on with her teacher, which is like the proper finger positioning. And so uh, I'm just going to hold my hands up here, and Kate could do a better job. But I didn't run this past her beforehand to see if she wanted to come up and do an object lesson. So when she's playing the clarinet, she's supposed to keep her fingers uh, rounded like this. And it saps her strength and her, and her quickness if, she, if those first fingers buckle like that or hyperextend. Okay, so you don't really need to know that. But uh, unless you play the clarinet, it's a good t- uh, tip for you. So, but that's a, that's a hard thing to change when you've been playing like that for a long time. So our teacher's been working on this, and she's actually been uh, meeting with a physical therapist at Wash U to work on some other things related to playing the clarinet. And so one of the things she started doing was she started putting tape on the underside of her fingers so that her fingers couldn't hyperextend. And if they tried to, you could feel that tape pulling on the back of her fingers. All right? And that keeps her fingers rounded. Now... If, if Kate wanted to somehow, I don't think that Kate's going to do this because it's not very comfortable, but what she could do is she could be like, okay, so the key to playing a clarinet, the heart of clarinet playing is these, this tape on the back of my fingers and insist, good clarinetists always play with tape on the back of her finger, on, on the back of their fingers. But that's really not, that's not true though because that's not what the tape is for. The tape is to get her to the moment when she doesn't need the tape anymore, and then the tape can be discarded. And and what Paul is saying is, is that the law was definitely good. There's nothing wrong with it. It got us to a certain point, and now we no longer need it. Now, that's not a great illustration. The best one I have is one, uh, again, that some of you have heard before, and it goes like this. So my kids went to uh, a school where uh, the school colors are maroon, and when they were in elementary school and they would go on school field trips, for instance, to the zoo, they would all be required to wear maroon shirts. That was just the rule. And, and the, reason, the, the reason why that's the rule is because maroon kind of stands out. And the teachers and the, you know, the, the parents who go along, they can see all the maroon shirts like moving around. You know? So it's, it's just easier to keep an eye on them. And so it's easier to see like when a kid with a maroon shirt is trying to climb into the lion's cage. And you can be like, hey, you, you know, second grader, get away from there. Or when they're lining up to get on the bus to go home at the end of the day, you can say, okay, do we see everybody? And they're easier to spot that way, right? And so that was just a convenient way. They're young. They don't know exactly what they're doing. Um, They need that sort of, they need that sort of, uh, uh, you know, accountability of having that that particular color on that can be easily seen. Now, when my family goes to the zoo and my kids are all more grownish, we, we don't ask them to wear maroon shirts anymore. And the reason why is, is because they've all, they've all reached this age where they know who we are and they know don't climb in the lion's cage. They know when it's time to go home, they're going to get into our Honda Odyssey. And nobody's got to sort of corral them. They just come along because they're old enough to do that yet. So the problem... You know, the thing about the maroon shirts is that they're necessary for a time. But once you get to a certain level where you know who you are and you know who you belong to and you know what's right and wrong, the maroon shirts then become, it would be foolish to be like, hey, every time we go to the zoo, I grew up with this rule. We live, I, I, this is, I'm going to die with this rule. We wear maroon every time to the zoo. That would be unnecessary. If you want to do that, that's fine. And Paul says this over and over. Like if you want to you you know, keep from eating meat, if you want to circumcise your sons, 
If you want to uh, observe the Sabbath, that is totally fine. You can totally do that. But it's no longer necessary, right? Now, I don't, it does not mean that I'm cool with my kids climbing in the lion's cage or that my kids can just get in whoever's car they want to when it's time to go home. I, I, don't mean that. I don't mean that. I just mean they don't need the maroon shirt in order to make that happen. And Paul's point about the law being a guardian until Christ came is, is we no longer need that guide to get us to Jesus. Now that Christ has come, you can, dis- you can dispense with the maroon shirts. You can dispense with the law. It's bad because its time is up. That's the first thing that Paul says. But the second thing, the second point he's going to make is, and this is all, that, this is all prelude to, to what I want to say here. The second point he wants to make is this, is that uh, my, my Jewish Christian friends, the law has become your identity. And it should not be your identity. You look at people coming into the church and they don't dress like you and they don't eat the same food as you do and they don't think they should worship on the same day as you and you suspect that they're not circumcised and you say, Oh, you must be outsiders. And what you're doing is you're using the Jewish law as an identity marker. This is who the church is. It's a badge. This is who the church is. And if, you don't, if you're not wearing this badge, you're not really in. And what Paul wants to say is the badge always has to be Jesus. The badge can never, ever be something that's not Jesus. That's going to end up screwing us and everybody else up. So what I want to do is look at this text and talk about bad identities, fake identities, false identities, what is it that causes identity crisis in me and you and in the Jewish, uh, uh, the, the, the Christians of uh, Galatia, and then what our good identity is and how this text gets us to the good identity, the true identity, who you really are, or if you're not, how to find out who you really are. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to tell you this morning, how to find your true identity. You don't have to search around anymore. You don't have to latch onto something and say, okay, this is going to be me. It's actually being offered to you. But first, got to get through the bad identity stuff. Now, fake identities in this text do three bad things to us. They're bad for us socially, they're bad for us psychologically, and they're bad for us behaviorally. So first of all, a false identity here in this text, it's bad for us socially. Look at verse 28 with me. This is, and we're going to come back to this verse again. Paul says that if you've been connected to Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. If you find your identity in your your ethnicity, if you find your identity in your socioeconomic status, if you find your identity in your gender, you are going to have an identity crisis. You're going to end up being screwed up. Because as as near to our hearts, so Paul Paul picks three things that he's not saying it's not fake. There definitely is such a thing as ethnic Jews and ethnic Greeks. There definitely is such a thing as rich people and poor people. There definitely is such a thing as men and women. If you find yourself identifying yourself as those things, it is going to screw you up socially. Now, these sorts of things, they look like a good way to get unity. We are Americans. I am a male, right? That's who I am. I can join up with the other males. I am whatever socioeconomic class I happen to be in. That's my class. That's who I am. And so it looks like, you know, once you do that, once you say, this is who I am, then there's all sorts of other people who also have that same identity that you can gather up with. And it feels like a good way to get unity. This is my political party, 
or this is my church, or you know, this is my favorite sports team, or whatever it is. And you're like, okay, that's my group. And you're with your group, and now you've got unity. But it's actually cheap because those unities necessarily block out other people in order to create them. If I find my ultimate identity as a middle-class white male, then I'm blocking out upper-class and lower-class people of color who are women. And somebody can say, well, who, you know, who cares about that? So, okay, so like a lot of times I don't. I go home and I don't think like, you know, I wish I could hang out with all different kinds of people here. I've got me and my family. But unfortunately, in the Christian church, we don't have that luxury. The whole point of this text is that Jewish Christians are not allowed to keep Gentile Christians out. And I can, I can, I can forge a sort of cheap unity by saying, let's just be with people who are just like us. But that actually is a cheap unity because it creates disunity by blocking other people out. This is why Paul is so hard against this. Here, and he says basically the same thing in Colossians 3 as well. And, and in other places, is that there's no Jew or Greek, there's no male or female, there's, there's no slave or free. The, the single-minded purity of the early church was, they saw that as a strength. But what, what, what did, you know, this is who we are. This is what we believe in. It's us against the world. But once it became their identity, it made it hard to onboard Gentile Christians as well. It made it hard to onboard anybody else who was different than them. And honestly, this is, just to be frank with you, this is an LCMS problem, right? We definitely are. There's a certain socioeconomic class that LCMS churches tend to be that makes it difficult for people of lower classes to come in and feel like they belong. And I don't, we're going to kick anybody out, right? But we need to know that this is the case and fight against this, which means that we're going to have to do our best to make extra sure that people who come into our doors who aren't middle class or upper middle class or whatever it is that you would describe a lot of us in here, to make sure that they're welcome. Because when they come in, they will know these aren't actually my people. But that's a good thing because the church is made up of people who aren't each other's people. If the church is going to be the church, it has to be a collection of people who aren't each other's people because the only thing that they really identify as is Jesus' people, no matter what else, okay? So it can be bad for us socially. It can be bad for us psychologically. Fake identities lead to pride or shame. Fake identities will always lead to pride or shame. I mean, if you look at that list and you think, um, so a Jew or Greek, definitely both groups saw themselves as like the better of the group. You know, the Jews are like, we're the right ones, and the Greeks are like, we're the wise ones, and the Jews are the foolish ones, and the Jews thought the Greeks were the foolish ones. And so, you know, one group has pride because who I am, ethnically, that's, that's good. I'm the top of the heap. Who they are ethnically is bottom of the heap. Same thing with male or female, especially in, in this culture. You know, the males would have been the people who had the status, the people who had the identities, the people who had the names. And the females wouldn't have. And so there's either pride on one hand or shame in the other hand. And same thing, of course, with, we, I just talked a second ago about socioeconomic status, with slave or free. There's definitely an element of shame versus pride in that slave-master relationship there. And, th and this, is what, this is what fake identities always do, is they always establish, I mean, they always, you know, you're going to be 
proud of what you've done if you're matching up with your chosen identity or you're going to be shameful. And again, I, again this is a topic I've come to, to hear a lot, so a lot of these illustrations are going to be the same. But like, if your identity is, I'm successful at work, what you've done is you've, you've set yourself up for pride or shame. You can either be proud that you, know, you got the promotion. You can either be proud that there was four people in the office who were going for that corner office, and you're the one who got it. And when you walk past their desk out in the cubicle land, you can know, yeah, I got the corner office. Or shame, like frustration, that you have to see that person walk by your desk every day and go to that corner office. And, and that's the way identities always work. Our fake identities always do that to us. They put us in a position where we're, we're either going to be proud, which is one of the seven deadly sins, right? We're going to be proud of who we are, or we're going to experience shame because we don't match up. All right, just bear with me. This is going to be a little bit, uh, I, I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not what I'm about to say next, but it certainly can't help, uh, it can't hurt your attention that I, that I prefaced it with that line. Uh, you know, so one of the things that we do, one of the things we do to establish our identity since the sexual revolution is we use our sexual preferences to establish our identity. We're heterosexual, we're homosexual, we're straight, or you're, we're LGBTQ, and What's interesting is that the Bible doesn't ever talk in those terms. The Bible doesn't talk about heterosexual people. Instead, and, it's not, and this is a huge, big, long conversation that we can have some of the time. It's probably unfair to even bring it up as a, as a, as a sub-point in a sermon. But when the Bible talks about human sexuality, do you know how it frames it? Is that spouses are to love and serve each other with their mind, body, and soul. It doesn't ever ask the question, well, what's your preference, you know? In fact, like, uh, you know, if, if, I probably should say it this way. If you ever asked me, are you homosexual or you're heterosexual, I probably shouldn't say heterosexual because what does that mean? Heterosexual means I'm into women, right? But I'm not supposed to be into women. I'm supposed to be into Angela. That's the point. And when I make my sexuality my identity, I've, I've, I've started to split away from who God created me to be. Like, my sexuality should never be the thing that marks me. And yet in our culture, it has become one of the most biggest self-markers. It's, this is who I am. And what it's led to is shame and pride. So what it's led to is shame and pride. For, 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 I'm not here to talk about like, the, the point of the sermon is not biblical sexuality. The point of the sermon is identity. And all I'm trying to point out now is when we make our sexuality, whatever it is, your identity, your marker then it's going to lead to shame or pride. And you see communities struggling with this. And our attitude as Christians should be, we should have the same amount of pity and love for them as we have for ourselves when we struggle with our own identities. Is that to live a life where you're, shameful, where you're ashamed of who you are, or you have to say, I'm proud of who I am, is a bad position. God did not call us to pride. God did not call us to shame. God called us to be his children in Jesus Christ. Do not find your identity in sex. Do not find your identity in your money. Do not find your identity in your accomplishments. Do not find your identity in your attractiveness to other people or what other people think about you. It's going to lead to either pride or shame. It is psychologically damaging. And then the third, the third way it's damaging is, is it enslaves us. It's behaviorally damaging. Our fake identities always enslave us. This is one of the things Paul wants to point out in both sections, section A and section B of our readings, in verse 23, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned 
until the coming faith would be revealed. Imprisoned until Jesus would be revealed. We find out that's what the coming faith means. Also, jump down to chapter 4. He says the same thing again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he actually owns everything. But he's under guardian and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, he doesn't mean when you were little kids. He means back before Jesus came. We were enslaved. I'm sorry, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were enslaved to our fake identities. Now, the reason why it's bad to do a text like this in one sermon is because there's so much good stuff here. What is it, that elementary principles of this world, that's actually just one word in Greek, stoicheia, and it's kind of a famous word in biblical studies because nobody's totally sure exactly what it means. But it's a word outside of the, the, the Greek Bible, it's a word in Greek that means like the basic elements of the world, you know, uh, uh, dirt, fire, air, uh, water. I can't remember what all the, I, there's four basic elements. I don't remember what they were. Sorry. But, but these things were like the things that many Greek philosophers, many Greek thinkers thought. This is, what, this is what composes all matter, is these four basic elements. And by extension, it became a slang term for this is what people worship. Right? We worship the natural world. We worship things outside of us that we think are going that, that we think can make us happy, that we think can be in charge. Most of us don't worship like pagan gods, but we do worship the elementary principles of this world. Still, we worship sex, and we worship money, and we worship power, and we worship all these things. And Paul is saying, you used to be enslaved to these things, but now since Jesus came, you're no longer slaves to these things. Now. Just to sum up the first bad section, and then we're going to get into the second good section, we're going to look more in depth of the text, is that anything that you worship other than Jesus, anything that you find your identity in other than Jesus, career success, sex, money, power, uh, your friends, whatever it is, it is going to enslave you. It will control you. It will say, here's the standard that you have to meet. And if you don't meet this standard, shame for you. You're going you're to get shame. Whether it's sex, if you don't meet the standard of what it means to be appropriately sexually active or appropriately sexual in our culture. If it's money, if you don't make, you know, and, and all this is relative too, right? Like in, in a certain group, um, you, you know, amongst you guys, I'm pretty comfortable. Uh, you know, we're all the same sort of uh, economic strength. But when I would go to work parties with Angela and uh, there'd be lots of business muckety-mucks around, I would definitely feel the weight of these people could buy me and own me here. And so it changes, that, that shame changes depending on what group you're in. And a lot of times, if I'm doing, you know, if you're doing some sort of mercy ministry and you're the person who shows up from the middle class, the, the temptation is to be like, okay, I'm here to help. I'm here to fix everything. You know, I'm here to, I'm here to, I'm help, I'm here to make your guys' life better. That's the pride that comes from that too. Anything that you make as your identity outside of Jesus is going to lead to enslavement, guaranteed. And so what we need is a true identity that doesn't come from us comes from outside of us, and that's what's offered us in the gospel. So let's dig into this one true identity. I'm going to ask three questions here, and then we're going to be done. How, what, and who? So first of all, how do we get this true identity? And the answer for Paul is baptism. Look at verse 27, uh, back up in chapter 3. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the key to getting to the spot where you don't identify with your uh, ethnicity, where you don't identify with your money, where you don't identify with your gender, is 
to be baptized and to live in what it means to be a baptized child of God. Now, why baptism? Here's why baptism. is because baptism is objective and it happens to you from outside of you. Now, definitely Paul is going to argue that we're saved by faith. And I, I just preached a sermon on this a month ago, so I don't want to go back and preach the same sermon. But being baptized and being saved by faith are not two separate things. The Bible joins these things to get to, together. And if you have questions, you can come talk to me. Or you can uh, shoot back on our YouTube page and watch that sermon again. Um, but baptism, as, as the way in, functions this way. Sometimes as a Christian, I know that I don't know enough. I know that my th- theology isn't as good as it should be. You know, I can study, I can think about things, I don't know what I should know. And sometimes, i got to be honest with you, sometimes my theology is bad. I know that that's true because I'm a human being, and there's not a single person who has a perfectly good philosophy or theology. So I know that my theology is screwed up in some places too. Now, when I think about that, if I think that my status, that who I am depends upon my good theology, then I'm going to always be kind of worried, what about the parts of my theology that aren't good? Now, I can tell myself the lie that, well, my theology is 100% good, but the Bible won't let me do that. Human nature being what it is, it's unavoidable that part of my theology is screwed up. What about my faith? How, I, how much I believe in it? Well, it's the same thing. Like, do I really, really believe? Am I really, really a Christian? Sometimes I don't really, really believe like I should. Sometimes I have all kinds of doubts. Sometimes I have all kinds of worries. You know, is God really in charge? Is this story really true? I, like you guys, have those thoughts all the time. If my relationship with God is based upon the steadiness of my faith, it's going to be in flux as well. So what I need is something objective. And baptism provides that. God puts his name on me. He puts his name on me and says, you belong to me. No questions asked. Everything else, I might be a male, I might be female, I might be rich, I might be poor, I might be one ethnicity, I might be another ethnicity, I might be super smart about science, I might be super smart about the Bible, I might be super faithful, I might not have any faith. All of that is constantly in flux. I might be very young and strong. I might not be young and strong at all. I might be very attractive. I might be very ugly. All of these things are constantly in flux. And trying to build our identity on all these things, whether it's like the bad things, sex, money, and power, I say that ironically, of course, those are good good, good gifts of God, or whether it's the good things like theology and faith, trying to pin your identity on those is like trying to play pin the donkey, pin the tail on the donkey. You're, you're taking a shot at something that's, that, that, that's in the dark. And on top of that, it's a moving target. Our faith, our attractiveness, our bank accounts, our knowledge of the Bible, constantly in flux. Instead, what we need is God to say, don't worry about any of that. You are mine. And in baptism, that happens to us. The way it does this in verse 27 is that baptism unites us to Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Which means that, you know, Paul uses this language sometimes of becoming a Christian is like wearing Christ, like an article of clothing. You're you're wearing Jesus. And his point is this, we call it union with Christ. That when when, when God looks at you guys, he sees, he doesn't see male or female, he doesn't see rich or poor, he's not stupid, he knows all that stuff's there. But the primary he thinks he sees you as your identity, the primary way he sees you is you are inside of his son. And so everything he feels about Jesus Everything he knows about Jesus, all the commitment he has for his son, all the passionate acceptance he has for his son, 
he now has for you. And our identity has to be built on that, and that's what baptism does. Second thing, what? What does this do? What does baptism do specifically? The answer is, is it adopts us. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We might receive adoption as sons. So, what does adoption mean? Adoption is a great example here because adoption is a perfect way to understand what it means to not pin your identity on peripherals or on accidentals or even on things that you think are super important to you. So you take a kid who gets adopted and the kid has this life. And usually if a kid is adopted, the, the, the life is not good. They've lost their parents at best or they've just never known their parents. They've grown up in poverty. They've been grown up kicked around between uh, one foster home and the other, and I'm not, kicked around was the wrong word because we, we have foster parents here who are terrific parents. But when a kid gets adopted, what happens is, is that everything about that life, which that's who they are, and you know that kids who grow up without parents, especially the older they get as teenagers, is their identity becomes, I'm not loved, I'm not accepted, I don't belong anywhere. Actually, I just get passed back and forth. And when they get adopted, all of that changes. I'm not saying their feelings change. Their feelings might not change at all for a long time or maybe never, but their reality changes. Their identity changes. The name on the back end of their name changes. Legally, they now belong to this family, and that's who they are, just as much as if they've been biologically born into that family. And so when Paul says the key to finding who you really are is to understand that you've been adopted into the family of God by union with Christ. Because you're inside of Jesus, this is why he uses the word sons and not sons and daughters. Because if you've been plugged into Jesus, who is the son of God, that makes you the son of God or the daughter of God. I just said a second ago, this is truth, that God looks at Jesus and everything he sees about Jesus, he holds true to be about you. Including the fact that Jesus is his son. If you've been plugged into Jesus by baptism, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he says, that's my daughter, that's my son, just as much as Jesus is. That's your new identity. Everything else is in flux. That will always be the case, is that you are a child of God. Finally, to whom? Now this is, what, this is one of the, I told you earlier, right at the beginning, we'll, we'll be done in just a second, that Paul says the same thing twice here, chapter three, end of chapter three, beginning of chapter four, one of the reasons why he does this is because he wants to do a, a, a kind of a big shift in the middle of it, and, the, and it goes like this. So chapter three, here's the argument. Okay, the, the, the Jewish Christians in the church are saying, look, the true people of God are children of Abraham. So Jesus is essential to becoming a, true, a, a member of the true people of God. But actually, the really, really, the truly true Christians are the ones who are the children of Abraham. The promises were made to the, the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And unfortunately, you Gentiles aren't. You guys are on the outside looking in. And so, um, you know, you can, you can either be like peripheral members, I guess, or, I mean, your other option is to become Jewish, which means you guys are going to have to get circumcised. You're going to have to stop eating shellfish. You're going to have to start wearing different clothes and to start uh, or, you know, observing worship on the Sabbath. And Paul says, actually, no. In Paul's argument, it goes like this. So this goes back into chapter 3. We don't have time to, to look at the whole thing. There's actually only, but when, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your offspring, he just meant one person. Not all the Jews of all time, but just one specific Jew, Paul says. And that Jew was Jesus. And if you've been baptized into Christ, 
that makes you a Jew. And it doesn't matter if you're ethnically Jewish or if you're American or whatever your ethnicity is. If you've been baptized into Christ, you are now an official Jew, just as much as ethnic Jews are. In fact, he says in Romans 2, maybe even more so if you actually worship the Messiah. If you submit to the true king of the Jews, that makes you even more of a Jew than ethnic Jews who refuse to submit to Jesus. What's he saying? Who's your real father? Look at the end of uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, if you've been united to Christ, if you're inside of the one true Jew, then that means that you are a Jew too. Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You want to be a member of God's people? You want to belong to the inner circle? Believing in Jesus makes you a child of Abraham, a real legitimate child of Abraham. All right, that's good news. That means that the one true group at the heart of the universe, the group, the only, and I know, you know, Christianity, when you talk to unbelievers, frequently they'll talk about Christianity as being exclusive, and, you know, you guys just think that you're right and everybody else is outside. Actually, Christianity is the most inclusive group in the history of the world. If you want to be a member of any other group, you want to be a member of a golf club, you got to play golf. If you want to be a member of the PTA, you got to have kids and they got to be going to that school. If you want to be a Christian, though, it doesn't matter who you are. You can have any sort of hobbies that you want. You can have any sort of bad moral history. You can have any sort of bad sinful habits. You can be any sort of ethnicity. You can be any sort of socioeconomic group. And you can be included. You can be a part of the inner circle. The one true, the most inclusive, actually the only truly inclusive group in the history of the universe is the Christian church. But Paul knows that there's actually something more than that that you want. Now, I think it's top of the line. And those you guys, we've talked about 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 in here. The body of Christ is the body of Christ. I'm not saying that there is something. Like belonging to the Christian church is connecting to God himself. Whatever church you belong to. Whatever Christian church you belong to. But is there not something deep down inside of you that longs for something more? Look, when we build our identities on our sexuality, it's really not sex that we're after. It's this transcendent experience that's going to validate us and mean that we've arrived and we've made contact with ultimate reality. When you try to make more and more money, it's, 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 you guys know, it's just total cliches about how much money is enough, you know, the next dollar, whatever it is. You're not actually trying to make more money. That's not really what you're trying to do. You're actually trying to make contact with the truth, with the ultimate experience, with that point when you know. Some of you are working for retirement because you have it in your head, the mistaken notion that when I retire, that's going to be it. I'm going to reach the promised land. We're looking for transcendence. That's what we're looking for. Paul's going to give that to us in the second half. So look what he does here. In the first half, in chapter 3, his payout is this. You want to belong? You can belong. Everything, that's been, everything that they're telling you is not true about you actually is true. You are Abraham's offspring. In the second half, he's going to up it. And he's going to say, I'm going to actually give you transcendence. Look in chapter 4. Here's what he says in verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, so we're like, okay, you already, yeah, you already, you already talked about this, Paul. We want to be adopted as the, the offspring of Abraham, right? No, no, he says it's better than that. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. See how he ends cha uh, chapter 3 with heirs of Abraham? He ends 
chapter 4, verse 7 with, you are heirs through God. It's not just that you belong to the most inclusive group of all time. You have actually become a child of God himself. You've actually become a member of God's family. You have made contact with the transcendent, capital T, transcendent, the ultimate truth, ultimate reality. You've finally made contact with that, not as an intellectual experience, not as a psychological experience, not as an emotional experience, but as a relational experience, we have come to know God as Father. How does this happen? Verses four and five. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is the son of God, born of a woman, also a woman's son, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There is a huge gap between me and you and the transcendent, ultimate reality. And we try to build these little tiny rickety bridges to get across there. Financial security. I got my kids through college. I've got good friends. My kids, my, my kids call me once a week. I got a promotion last year. We try to build these rickety bridges to get to the transcendent, and they can never get across because the transcendent is too far, and there's too big of a barrier there until God, who has his feet firmly planted in the transcendent realm, sends his son to plant his feet firmly in our realm, and so now there's somebody straddling our realm, the realm of the imminent, the realm of the here and now with God's realm, the realm of the eternal, the transcendent, and functions, Jesus functions as a cosmic bridge between us and ultimate reality. And that's the only way to get across. The only thing in the world that stands both in the transcendent realm and in the imminent realm is Jesus of Nazareth. And if you know him, if you believe in him, if you've been baptized into him, you've been connected with him in such a way that you have access to the transcendent realm. Like I said, not as an intellectual exercise, but as a relationship and that's why, last thing and I'll be done, God gives his Holy Spirit to us in verse 6, crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father. Now, I'm not going to talk about what Abba means, because honestly, I have no clue what Abba means. And that's really not the point. The point is, is that Abba, Father, is a prayer that comes straight from the lips of Jesus himself. And what Paul is saying is, is when you've been connected to Christ, when you have transcended this barrier between the imminent and the transcendent, you are allowed to use the exact same familial language that Jesus uses for his father because Jesus is now your brother. He, Jesus is now, uh, uh, that, that makes us uh, Jesus' sisters and brothers, and that makes God our father. And that's got to be your identity. Now, 30 seconds and I'll be done. This is a Father's Day. It's not, I don't know if this is why they put this in here. It's not really a Father's Day sermon. So I know a lot of you struggle with the notion of God as father because you have screwed up fathers. And I worry about this with my kids too. I worry that my kids are going to grow up. And I pray that like God would help them to see that he's the real father and that I'm just a bad echo of what it means to be a father because I'm not a good father. And I, I'm, not, this is not, I'm not blowing up you know, fake humility, uh, smoke at you. This is actually, you could ask my kids. I've had my kids come and say to me, hey, you're not being a good father right now. That's how I know I'm not a good father. Let me just say this. I'll be done. If you have a good dad, and all of you, for those of you who have good fathers, the things that you know are good about your fathers are good because they match up with who our father is here. The one who says, you belong to me, no questions asked. You don't have to do anything to impress me. You don't have to do anything besides just exist. Because I, my, my son paid his blood for your life. The things about your father that you hate, the, thing, the things that, uh, about me that my kids uh, don't like, I want you to know that you don't like those things because your heavenly father is good and you know the difference between a good father and a bad father. 
Throw yourself on him. Don't use me as an excuse, Harry and Kate and Reeve. Don't use your, guys, do not use your own fathers as excuses for why you can't turn to the one true father. Everything, that, everything in your heart that is crying out right now to be completely accepted for somebody who knows every single little thing about you and accepts you, no questions asked, no shame, no need for pride, because you are loved and accepted, is offered to you in the Father of our brother Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for putting your name on us. Thank you for marking us out as your kids. Help us not to find our identity in all these other flimsy things, which are certainly going to fail. But help us to always know that who we are is fundamentally your daughters and sons in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. the Father. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We're the church and we stand as one. We're the church and we stand as one.
stand for prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being such a loving God and such a loving Father. Help us not to ever come into your throne room without coming as your children, Lord. Help us to come trusting that you are faithful and that your heart is to do uh, do good for us, to transform us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. And help us to, to live in that reality. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we have a prayer request this morning, lots of prayer requests. A lot of us who are struggling physically, um, fear of mortality. A lot of us, Father, who have uh, struggling relationships, relationships which are strained in some relationships which even seem to be cracked and broken. A lot of us are struggling with financial concerns too, Lord, and you know our hearts. You know how they're prone to wonder, and you know how they're tempted to turn these things into idols and to, to stress over them and to, to wonder if it means that we aren't really truly human, if there's something broken about us. Father, help us to trust you that you're going to fix all of these things, that you're going to make our finances new that you're going to make our bodies new, that you're going to make our minds new, that you're going to make our souls new and our relationships new. Help us to trust that you're fixing all these things and that you're doing it, Father, out of pure love for us. You're doing it out of pure love for your Son, Jesus. Take away our anxiety and our worry. Oh, this is a prayer we have to pray, at least I have to pray every few seconds. God, take away our anxiety and our worry about these things and trust that you, the Lord of the universe, also, our loving Father are fixing all these things. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you, all of us this morning. Uh, thank you. Some of us, it's easy to, 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 to thank you for this. And some of us, it's difficult to thank you for this. Father, we thank you for our fathers and for the people that you put into our life to raise us. And Father, whether they were more bad than good or more good than bad, uh, Lord, you in your sovereign wisdom gave us the fathers that you want us to have. And help us to trust you and rely on you for that. And help us to be thankful for the love that we receive from our fathers and for the training and for uh, the wisdom we receive from them. And help those of us who are fathers to love and serve and uh, honor our children as stewards of these gifts that you've given us, which don't really belong to us, but belong to you. And by, by, by doing that, Father, would you help me and the rest of us who are fathers reflect who you are, reflect a bit of your self-sacrificial love, of your complete acceptance to our own kids. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things because you are our Father, and you have called us your sons and daughters. You've invited us into your throne room to sit on your lap and to bring our requests before you but only because you've united us to your son, Jesus, our brother, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us in all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he's now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. name the prayer that he taught us our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Bless the Lord. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Join us downstairs for Bible study. Look around and find somebody you don't recognize and start to build that relationship. Go in peace.